0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we have another double-feature edition of the program. Later on, we'll be hearing from Maya Salavitz, a reporter and author specializing in issues related to drug addiction and drug policy. She'll be speaking with us about her new book, Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction, and the future of addiction, as well as countering some of the misinformation out there about drug policy and drug addiction in the United States. But before we get to that conversation, we're going to be joined by Letta Tiller of Human Rights Watch to discuss a paper that she and Elisa Epstein recently co-authored entitled Legacy of the Dark Side The Costs of Unlawful U.S. Detentions and Interrogations Post-9-11 This report essentially deals with 20 years of rather disturbing activities that have been going on at Guantanamo Bay Naval Base and its detention center. Additionally, though, Letta will fill us in on some news about a prison in Syria which she calls Guantanamo Bay on Steroids. She's even providing us with some exclusive content, namely, chilling audio she received from inside that prison. All that and more in our conversation with Letta Tiller, but first award from one of our sponsors, namely Joseph Matheny, the transmedia storyteller and pioneer of alternate reality games. He has a new audio drama out entitled Xen, that's X-E-N. And as with all of Joseph's previous work, it is a mind-bender. So without further ado... Award from our sponsor, Joseph Matheny.
1: Words make the walls that trick us into
0: complying with stasis.
1: Zen, the Zen of the other, is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. shadows, the void are all painted Oh, magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a four-spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero. Which for me, those days
0: seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside.
1: Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena, or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen. The Zen of the Other. The audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service.
0: Welcome to Parallax Views, Letta Taylor of Human Rights Watch, Associate Director of the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch. I should say, how are you doing today?
2: I'm fine, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: So, Leta, I wanted to have you on the show because of the 20th anniversary of Guantanamo Bay and all these just horrible, unlawful detentions uh, since the beginning of the war on terror under George W. Bush, uh, Human Rights Watch, in collaboration with the Costs of War Project at the Watson Institute, have a report out entitled Legacy of the Dark Side, the Cost of Unlawful U.S. Detentions and interrogations post 9-11. I guess the place we should start is maybe with that title. Where does that uh, term, the dark side, come from? That's in specific reference, I think, to something.
2: Yes. Well, this is a term that Vice President Dick Cheney used uh, in justifying the excesses that the Bush administration unleashed unleashed in response to the horrific and tragic 9-11 attacks. Uh, But rather than deciding that the way to confront Al-Qaeda and um, armed attacks that killed thousands of people uh, on airplanes uh, with um, tried and true methods that involved human rights protections and the rule of law, Cheney said it was time to go, quote, to the dark side um, to uh, route out the people responsible for the 9-11 attacks.
0: And I think his his justification for that, I think the exact quote, and this was in an interview with uh... Tim Russert, shortly after 9-11, I believe on September 16th uh, of 2001, he said, we also have to work, though, sort of, we also have to work through sort of the dark side, if you will. And then he says, that's the world these folks, our enemies, operate in, so we have to use this uh, every means at our disposal. And I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but, you know, I I think that resonated with with a lot of Americans at the time. A lot of Americans thought, well, you know, these terrorists attacked us and they're not going to play by the rules, so maybe we have to not play by the rules either. And I was wondering if you could respond to why that is very, very incorrect and, uh, you know, I would say off base.
2: Yeah, well, you know, first, let's think a little bit about 9-11. 3,000 people died. The nation was on edge. The world was on edge. People felt extremely vulnerable. And this is historically the time when people are feeling at their most vulnerable and under attack, that they're willing to embrace what Cheney called the dark side, that they're willing to lower their standards and cast aside their own morals um, and laws uh, because uh, they want someone to protect them. They wanna feel uh, that, that someone is strong and looking out for them. And so I think the Bush administration, I feel strongly that the Bush administration seized this moment to use whatever techniques it wanted. Uh, But what it what, of course, it unleashed is 20 years of abuses that have undermined U.S. moral authority, undermined the rule of law worldwide and created a, a two tiered system of justice where anyone who bears the so-called terrorism label is automatically considered someone who is not entitled to what are supposed to be universal human rights protections. And this applies not only to people who are, um, who actually have committed armed extremist attacks or uh, suspected of, of committing them. This terrorism label is now being used by governments around the world to target civil society members to target religious minorities, to target people based on their race, to target people because they're LGBT, to target um, political opponents, anyone they want to target, journalists, bloggers, people like you and me, human rights defenders, um, podcast producers. Uh, We're all terrorists in the eyes of certain regimes, and the U.S., certainly abuse was going on in a lot of places around the world before 9-11, but the US officially lowered the bar for rights worldwide and said, if security is the issue, if terrorism is your fear, you can do whatever you want. You can go to the dark side. And that's one of the things, in addition to all the individual lives had been harmed, the, the, the global ripple effect, this is one of the most dangerous things about um, what was unleashed in the aftermath of of 9-11 by the Bush administration and and has been carried on in various forms by all successive presidents, even uh, President Obama and to some degree, President Biden so far.
0: I wanna get into some of the specifics of how we went to the dark side after 9-11. But first, uh, you mentioned that uh, a lot of the actions taken uh, in the post-9-11 world A lot of the actions taken by the CIA and and the Bush administration and successive administrations uh, have undermined uh, U.S. moral authority. And I wanted to talk about that because I think that a lot of people don't recognize that something like Guantanamo Bay and what has gone on there uh, really does have effects uh, on international relations and uh, what's been called the rules based order. Because, uh, you know, countries that violate human rights. Uh, can say, well, look at what the u s does they can sort of pull this what aboutism and they're able to do that in a way because we've also been violating human rights, so it, it sort of undermines our ability uh, to tackle human rights issues
2: indeed, I mean Putin in, in his first meeting with meeting with Biden after Biden took office um, uh, when uh, when asked in a in, in a news conference by by reporters about um U.S. critiques of of human rights abuses uh, by uh, Russia. Um, His response was, what about Guantanamo? I mean, this is who is the who is the U.S. to talk? And it's not just Russia. It's Cuba, of course, um, loves every every anniversary of Guantanamo because uh, it's allowed to crow about the um, about all the um, the uh, the horrific things that have happened in Guantanamo, which is of course on Cuban soil, um, and def- deflect criticism of the way that it's locked up political opponents um, and, and other abuses. And I remember this even back when I was a journalist before I joined Human Rights Watch, going to Cuba's and to report on uh, roundups of dissidents there who were thrown into horrific prisons. And when I asked the authorities about them, they just looked at me and said, you're an American. How can you like? Why are you talking to us about locking people up? So this is a China's done it. It's Egypt's done it, and yeah, it's it's absolutely a it's it's a perfect excuse. It's a perfect justification for uh, leaders around the world to deflect criticism uh, by the U.S. of their own reprehensible actions.
0: If you could take my listeners through how this all started, like in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I may have a, a few younger listeners uh, from uh, Generation Z that, you know, don't don't have as much of a memory of that post-9-11 era. How did we get to the point of uh, the CIA's rendition, detention, and interrogation program, RDI, and, and things of that nature?
2: Yeah, well, in fact, first, just a really important point that you raise is that uh, who actually... <laughs> Who in this country knows about Guantanamo? Who in this country knows about CIA black sites and the war on terror? 20 years have passed. Think of the millions of Americans who've been born since then, who maybe know that there's some place called Guantanamo. They certainly know what the CIA is. Maybe they've been to the CIA museum, which um, had a really controversial exhibit on torture where you could press buttons um, that light up groovy little buttons to tell you whether, you know, did you like this torture? Did you, you know, did the, do you think this person deserved to be tortured? Um, so I I think for I was going to say people, or they've yeah. seen
0: not not to interrupt you. I was going to say or yeah, they've seen uh or, or they've seen Zero Dark Thirty and that informs their view of all this uh, pretty exactly. incorrectly.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean most most depictions of the war on terror since um, since 9/11 have glossed over, even glorified in some form, uh, the horrific abuses c- committed by the CIA and the US military. And Zero Dark Thirty is, is, is a quintessential example. And it was a box office hit, whereas um, the report with Adam Driver, superstar, hunk, et cetera, right? Um, hardly anybody's heard of it. That's the report, that's, the, that's a, a, a feature film about uh, a U.S. Senate uh, investigation into the CIA torture program. So I should talk to you a little bit about what that CIA uh, torture program was um, because that's really where it all began, was um, just days after 9-11, President George W. Bush um, declared a so-called global war on terror. And unbeknownst to the public, uh, immediately after doing that, Um, he authorized the CIA to uh, carry out a a, 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 uh, rendition, uh, detention, and interrogation program uh, in hoping to route to find those responsible for 9-11. Now, of course, Governments have an obligation to protect people from harm. And of course, the Bush administration should have been looking for the perpetrators of 9-11. But what the CIA did with allies like Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, well, I guess, excuse me, I should back up because at that point, Afghanistan was still in the hands of the Taliban, but soon after with Afghanistan was round up um, all sorts of people who may or may not have been terrorism suspects, and subject them to some of the harshest interrogation techniques on the planet, such as waterboarding, which is near drowning. Um, And again, and again, and again, and again. The CIA took 119 men that we know of, and there were probably more, and rounded them up and sent them to so-called dark sites. These were secret interrogation centers uh, around the world far from the reach of. US authority of, of. US judges of the US public, rounded them up, secretly detained them, transferred them to these to, across um, country lines, across borders, uh, into these secret interrogation centers, which is also against the law. You can't just kidnap somebody and send them someplace they don't want to go without uh, having that, without bringing them before a judge to determine whether, whether that's lawful. So then they're placed in these so-called black sites and, and the name I think uh, describes it aptly windowless places where uh, um, unknown secret places where interrogators tortured many of these men, at least 39 of them with, with extreme techniques. So waterboarding, which I mentioned, rectal feeding, which is actually taking pureed food and putting it up the rectum of interviewees, that is a form of rape, actually. And there's absolutely no evidence that this could in any way, shape or form make anyone want to to give you any information about what was going on. Walling, which is knocking people's heads against walls. Um, Stress positions for hours at a time. Um, Leaving people, one man was placed in a small box um, threatening threatening sexual harm of course rectal feeding is 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 sexual abuse but also threatening to rape and harm loved ones i mean and the list goes on and, on and on and these were these were interrogation techniques that the cia uh practiced again on at least 39 men and it may well be more but but we're sure of at least 39 thanks to the senate intelligence committee report and and really terrific work by human rights watch reporters and others but there's still a lot of secrets about the dark side that we don't know. And one reason is that the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee report on, on CIA torture remains secret to this day. Only only the summary, which is very long, but is less than one-tenth of the total report has been made public.
0: And, and also those 39 that are currently detained at Guantanamo, 27 of whom I, I believe are held without charges, uh, that doesn't even, you know that's only uh, scraping the surface in a way because you have what I, I think 780 uh, men and boys who have been held by the U.S. military at Guantanamo since 2002.
2: Absolutely, and um, many the when Obama took office, and even be, even before took Obama took office, these CIA black sites had pretty much stopped. Uh, been been th- were inactive, and that's in large part because they didn't work. And one thing I really want to emphasize here is that not only is torture unlawful and unconscionable, but it's also just really stupid counterterrorism policy. It hands a recruitment card to group like groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS, um, and it it th- there's absolutely no um, guarantee at all or evidence that anyone who's tortured is going to uh, reveal information that's truthful. People will say anything they think that their interrogators want them to say when they're tortured. And this has been proven time and again, and in fact, there was no actionable intelligence produced from this torture. So when Obama took office, he, and he, clo- he declared no more CIA black sites, and he um, said, no torture, this is unconscionable, this has to stop. He also pledged to close Guantanamo, where, as you said, 780 men um, mostly and boys, mostly men, but also 15 boys had passed through. But in fact, that was the first or second day that Obama took office. Fast forward, here we are in 2022, 20 years after the opening of Guantanamo. It remains open. 39 men are still held there, 27 without charge, and... The, nine, the five 9-11 suspects detained there have yet to go to trial. <laughs> 20 years after 9-11, the victims of this attack have not seen justice served on these five suspects. Why is that? Because the U.S. created an inherently flawed uh, s- system to prosecute the, the suspects. And because the suspects were all brutally tortured, I should say, there's no no such thing as torture that is not brutal, but the interrogation techniques were, I would say, went above and beyond to be creatively evil. I mean, again, getting back to rectal feeding, what is that all about? What, you know, what that is just simply waterboarding. What is the point of this? So there's no justice. On top of everything else, there's no justice for the for, for 9/11. Um, so Guantanamo, unlike the CIA black sites, unlike military abuse at places like Abu Ghraib and uh, and Bagram in Afga- Ab- Abu Ghraib in Iraq and Bagram in Afghanistan, uh, the the abuses by the U.S. continue at Guantanamo. It's a living legacy. of of the abuses of 9-11. And as such, I'd say it's really become the most enduring legacy of the the excesses of 9-11. And again, people in, in the United States may not be aware of this, but I can assure you that millions and millions of people around the world are very much aware of what Guantanamo is. They are very much aware of what the dark side has been. They are very much aware that there are still 49 men, all foreign Muslims, because everybody who passed through Guantanamo was a foreign Muslim, they are still held there, these 39 men, and the majority of them have never been charged with a crime, and only two of the 39 men held there have even been convicted. So it's, it's absolutely incredible to me that the U.S. keeps, keeps this prison open, knowing what a recruitment card it is to to uh, groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda.
0: Could you talk about that a little? Because I don't think people consider that enough. The way in which you know things like Guantanamo Bay they do end up being recruitment tools uh, for the enemies we have in this so-called war on terror. I mean, it it it, it creates uh, you know a lot of anger towards the U.S.
2: Absolutely. Um- The narrative of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that the US and its allies, its Western allies, are in a war not on terror, but in a war against Islam. And the treatment, the abuse, the continuing abuse of foreign Muslim men at Guantanamo feeds right into that narrative. I mean, it's just here's an example. ISIS has routinely executed hostages, including Western hostages, including American hostages, um, as we know, beheaded them, otherwise killed them. And often, it has dressed its hostages, uh, either um, non-Muslim hostages, Western hostages, American hostages, among those, those Western hostages, has dressed them in orange jumpsuits. Why? Because the the prisoners at Guantanamo were dressed in orange jumpsuits when when they were first uh in, first imprisoned there. So then they execute them on on video and they disseminate these horrific videos. Why? To say this is what you did to us, so this is what we're going to do to you. So it's I mean it's the the strategic blunder that the U.S. is committing by continuing to keep Guantanamo open is is massive, and yet for reasons that are beyond me, um, we Guantanamo is still open. I guess I shouldn't say it's reasons that are still beyond me because it's 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 political cowardice that is keeping Guantanamo open, and it is opposition within many in Congress, which isn't which is in turn because these members of Congress are also political cowards. Um, One of the reasons that uh, Obama did not close Guantanamo, which was one of his first vows as president, and one reason that um, Biden a year into his uh, presidency has not yet closed Guantanamo, although he also vowed to do it, uh, is that Congress has blocked funding, for example, to transfer detainees for detention in the on the US mainland. Um, so it is a very po- politically challenging uh, task to close the prison, but I don't think it's impossible.
0: I just want to add to that really briefly, because I, I know there will be people that will say, well, you know, if you listen to, to some of the things George W. Bush uh, said at the onset of the war on terror, he, he was sure to say that uh, we are not against Muslims. And, and, you know, Barack Obama would make a distinction between Muslims and, uh, you know, groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And that may be true, but actions speak louder than words for a lot of people. And you have to think about the perceptions of uh, people who see what Guantanamo Bay is and what it does. Absolutely.
2: And even um, the, the the rise of the far right and the extreme right uh, that is committing violence um, has been growing exponentially in the US, uh, in Europe, in many countries in the West. And this, yes, the West has finally started to catch up with that trend and realize, oh, we have to get serious about this. But it was rising exponentially. The, the violent right wing extremism was rising before. Uh, Western governments started to publicly worry about it. And this also just fuels the perception that the only kind of armed extremists that the West is worried about are the the Islamist extremists. And and this is, what message does this send to anyone who is Muslim? And there's been an enormous amount of domestic targeting of of Muslims in the two decades since 9-11. We don't really get into that in our report, not because it's not important, but because it is a topic unto itself that is quite domestic. Our uh, report looked very much at what the US was doing abroad, um, including at Guantanamo. But um, Muslims have been targeted repeatedly. Uh, They have been entrapped by the FBI uh, and, and then accused and convicted of terrorism plots and um, often denied uh, the due process uh, to which they're entitled. Now, of course, Muslims are not the only people in this country who have been victims of a of, of judicial bias. I mean, look at what happens to African Americans time and time again in our judicial system. Look at what happens to Latinos in our judicial system. So this is not, and, and poor whites for that matter. So I think, you know, this is this is not something unique to Muslims, but certainly in the so-called war on terror, there there were all kinds of repercussions in Muslim c- communities, incredibly invasive surveillance, um, a documentary really worth watching, The Fear of Being Watched, uh, about one, uh, one community, um, I think it was in Michigan, where, um, pretty much the entire community, Muslim community was under surveillance. So what does this do also domestically? What message does this send to Muslims who are trying to live their lives in this country and who think that as per our Constitution in the US, that they actually have the right to to religious freedom? It's extremely alienating and and counterproductive.
0: And also, I like sort of trying to get people past the whole, is this a left issue? Is this a right issue? Because ultimately, you know, if you're, say, a conservative and you're worried about where your taxpayer dollars go, there's a lot of money that has gone into uh, Guantanamo Bay.
2: Guantanamo
0: is the most expensive U.S.-run
2: prison in the world. Uh, It costs about Thirteen million to fourteen million dollars per prisoner per year to run Guantanamo um, to detain the thirty-nine men there, and that so that that compares to I think less than eighty yeah less than eighty thousand dollars a year for a prisoner in a supermax prison in the U.S. So let's think about that a little bit. So this war is not this war on terror is not only illegal. Immoral, creating a bigger stain on on the US reputation, uh, lowering the bar worldwide. Um, It's also draining taxpayers' dollars. Nearly five and a half trillion dollars have been spent in the US that we know of in the so-called global war on terror, according to the Cost of War Project at, at Brown University. Uh, which which um, commissioned this this report that I co-authored on, on the dark side. Um, nearly five and a half trillion with a T dollars in the past 20 years. The U.S. is currently active in more than 80 countries uh, in the name of countering terrorism. That's not always boots on the ground, it's training, it's advising. And that's where a lot of that money is going. We actually don't know the true cost because of the CIA black budget. So there's who knows how much more money going into the war on terror that we're not allowed to know about because the CIA's budget is secret.
0: So really briefly here too, uh, let's assume that uh, there have been people taken into uh, Guantanamo Bay that maybe you know aren't completely innocent themselves. Doesn't this sort of treatment that they've gotten without trials end up you know, almost in a weird way, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think of a word. It, it almost works to their favor because it's, it's, it's so awful what we're doing to them.
2: I wouldn't say that. It, well, I think that the more the U.S. heaps abuses on the detainees at Guantanamo and abuses other foreign Muslims and domestic Muslims for that matter in the so-called war on terror, the more it creates martyrs of these people who it's abusing. Now, of course, in many cases, the people it's abusing are innocent of any crime. Uh, And in fact, there are estimates that half or more of the men rounded up at Guantanamo um, are innocent of any crime, that they were just rounded up uh, in exchange for bounties, for example. And we know the U.S. was offering bounties, Um, but at the same time, um, for those who may actually have committed a crime, um, these abuses do create martyrs of them as well, and so that's you know that's extremely dangerous. It just again allows um, people who don't trust the United States to distrust it to distrust it even further and think and think more about the way that the U.S. is abusing people rather than about the fact that. Some of these people might have actually committed crimes, including the 9-11 attacks. So what we need is a system where we trust the due process uh, of these suspects, that we trust the system so that if if those who have actually committed horrific crimes um, are judged and brought to justice and are not serving time because nobody can figure out what to do with them and because the US is scared to let them out. They're serving time because they actually committed a crime and were properly, properly prosecuted in, in a fair trial and properly sentenced. But that's not happening. So again, we're, you know, we're 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 giving a recruiting card to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and we're denying due process to the people in Guantanamo and we're depriving the family members of people who died in attacks like 9/11 and those who survived such attacks of justice. So really I don't I don't see anything positive that's come out of this. I really, you know, I struggle because I try very hard to be balanced and you know I do think I am balanced but I try try as I might I can't figure out what Where where is there any advantage to the system we have now of of keeping Guantanamo open? And in not reckoning with two decades of abuses, why won't President Biden release the full Senate torture report? Why aren't all the photos of the abuses at Abu Ghraib made public? Why are men still being held two decades later without charge at Guantanamo? And why has not one member of the CIA been held to account for CIA black sites? No U.S. officials have been held to account. Lower level U.S. military um, members have been prosecuted and received pretty much slap on the wrist sentences um, for some of the abuses in military detention. Uh, but the CIA, um, which in some cases tortured people to death, uh, has not one member of the CIA has been held to account, nor ha- nor George W. Bush, nor any member of his cabinet. And um, Human Rights Watch for years has been saying that key cabinet members of George W. Bush and Bush himself should be criminally investigated for uh, the crimes committed during the war on terror.
0: So, Before we move on to uh, another story you've been covering that you wanted to talk about, uh, the the last question I had is if there were any policy recommendations that Human Rights Watch or the Cost of War Project had, what would they be? Because I think, you know, President Biden has sort of indicated uh, that he wants the U.S. to go in a more rights-based approach when it comes to a lot of international relations issues and also moving away from this global war on terror that we've been in Uh, for, you know, 20-some years now.
2: Yes. Well, I think President Biden may mean well, um, but I also think that he's in some ways replacing the so-called war on terror mantra with an over-the-horizon mantra. And what I mean by that is, for example, he's pulled troops out of Afghanistan um, but he's reserved the right to go in and strike with drones at any time when he wants to in Afghanistan, even if the U.S. is not officially at war with Afghanistan anymore. Um, so he might strike, maybe he'd strike the Taliban, but he'd probably be striking ISIS Khorasan, which is the, the Afghan um, arm of, of the ISIS um, franchise. Uh, so, um over the horizon strikes. What does that mean? That means that the U.S. sends in drone or other aircraft um, to to take out terrorism suspects, uh, and maybe there are special operations, um, special forces on the ground from time to time. But basically, the U.S. keeps its hands clean. It sends in its drones. Uh, it takes people out, and it says that it's killed terrorists. And until a group like the you know groups like Human Rights Watch or investigators. Again, investigative reporters at the New York Times say, "Oh, actually, that was ten civilians, which is what happened in August um, uh, with a drone strike in in Kabul." Um, the U.S. says, "You know, the U.S. says that it's it's killing uh, terrorism suspects, but how how does anybody know? There's almost no transparency." So I do think that President Biden wants to do the right thing. Significantly, uh, the Pentagon just this week called, uh, just a few days ago. Um, Said that it is that it's going to give much clearer instructions to the US military uh, for carrying out drone strikes. And that's a great sign. But the proof will be, you know, let these are actions, let's uh, these are words. Let's see what happens, uh, you know, over the next the course of the Biden presidency. Will he actually be able to pull back from this global war on terror? I would say significantly that President Biden has dramatically reduced drone strikes during his presidency. And and that's a very welcome sign. But we need a lot more transparency as to what's happening with these strikes. It was capture under um, under President uh, Bush. Then Obama started the trend of um, kill rather than capture. And that's when the whole drone strike uh, chapter of, of the war on terror started. So now, and now Biden's calling it uh, over the horizon strikes, right? So we have this, we have a whole different trend and a whole different uh, set of violations being carried out right now. Um, thousands of people killed in drone strikes and other airstrikes in the so-called war on terror. And the US is really, it's accounting for these deaths is, sh- is shockingly, um, uh, well, um, Obscure, I guess, opaque is the word I'm looking for. It's it has, I mean, there's almost no transparency on who it's killing, and it's it's its classification of who is a civilian and who is military is 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 just simply off. I mean, we can tell. Look at there's been investigations showing it, it in uh, some in some of its attacks in ISIS in Syria. The New York Times found that. Uh, they or estimated that the actual civilian casualties from these strikes was 31 times higher than, than uh, the U.S. government has admitted. So I'm really happy that Biden's looking into this, but we have a long way to go.
0: And are there any other yeah. uh, policy changes you think should be made yeah. if, if we want to get past this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the first step that President Biden should take is he should close Guantanamo. How can he do that? If, if Congress is blocking funding, well, for one thing, um, he can resettle, he can either repatriate uh, prisoners uh, or arrange to have them live, that is be resettled in third countries, countries that are not the US and not their homeland. And Obama did this successfully with dozens and dozens and dozens, actually hundreds of detainees. So uh, Biden can push for that. He can also, if if Congress continues to block funding for him to prosecute um, detainees in U.S. federal courts, he can pursue plea bargainings. Excuse me, he can pursue plea bargains with these detainees. And if the public goes ballistic, uh, if if um, they see that the 9/11 defendants are being uh, offered plea bargains then he can explain, well, it's because Congress has blocked money to allow me and my Justice Department to to have these these suspects be prosecuted in a US federal court where they might actually get a fair trial, which would be better for the victims. Because victims want, I mean, victims, we hope, want justice that's fair, right? not just any justice. Um, He can also, um, if that doesn't work, he could could even do um, um, trials by Zoom or some other teleconferencing a remote method, there's a lot of court uh, proceedings that are taking place remotely because of COVID-19. There's no reason that that couldn't be transferred uh, to Guantanamo. Uh, so I think that there's a lot that Biden could do to close um, to close Guantanamo. So that's step number one. Step number two, in parallel with that, uh, President Biden should release the full Senate torture report because that is a step toward holding the CIA accountable for its abuses uh, in the first several years after 9-11. Third, I think it's great that Biden is looking at trying to reduce civilian casualties in drone strikes and other airstrikes and so-called over-the-horizon strikes uh, in the war on terror, but he really I think needs to take a serious look at the overall premise of these airstrikes in the war on terror because they're not just being carried out in battlefields. They're being carried out far from where the U.S. says it is where the U.S. actually has uh, boots on the ground. They're being carried out in places like Yemen and Somalia. Uh, and there's a real danger that, that people are going to be droned by the U.S. in any corner of the world. And what message does that send to other countries? If the US is gonna take somebody out um, in any country and say it's part of the war on terror, well, Putin's gonna do the same. I mean, Putin, the Putin, you know, Russia's already believed to be behind the poisoning of several people it doesn't like, but it's going to get worse, particularly with the proliferation of drones. So I think it's really important that Biden take a close look at, at what do we mean by the war on terror? Are we really allowed to take people out with no due process in any part of the world at any time with a drone uh, because we think they may be a terrorist? Are they not entitled to any kind of due process? These are not easy, there's not easy answers here, but certainly there's a, you know, there's a path that the US could be taking. And I think this country really needs to rethink uh, this, this so-called global war on terror. You can call it something else, but it's still there, right? Still, 20 years later, the US government is taking people out, rounding people up, and in some cases still um, um, interrogating them, sending them to countries that torture, um, all in the name of countering terrorism. And what are we really getting for it? I think we're just getting a lot more resentment, alienation, and uh, I think it's just music to the ears of groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda.
0: So in the last few minutes we have with you here, you've been covering uh, a story uh, involving uh, a prison that's been captured by ISIS in Syria. You sent me some audio that is just heartbreaking. I don't know if I can use that in this episode or not, but maybe you could tell uh, the story in brief here about what is happening with that. Uh, You described it as uh, Guantanamo Bay on steroids.
2: Exactly, So, and this is, this is another example of where the US has lost moral authority, in fact, in the so-called war on terror. So after the fall of the so-called ISIS caliphate in, in, in Northeast Syria uh, in 2019, I'm sorry, after the fall of the so-called ISIS caliphate in, in Syria in 2019, in Northern Syria, um, US backed local um, uh, forces, Rounded up with the help of the U.S., the U.K., and other members of the so-called U.S.-led coalition on against ISIS, they rounded up thousands and thousands of ISIS suspects and family members—women, very young children, teenagers—rounded um, them up, tens of thousands of them, and 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 uh, imprisoned them in northeast Syria. Um, and three years later, and among them are nearly 45,000 foreigners, most of them Iraqi, but at least 12,000 women and children, and at least 2,000 foreign men. These foreigners are being held in locked camps and prisons for women and children, and in, sorry, locked camps for women and children, and in prisons for men, but also 700 boys. Um, of whom at least 100 are from 20 different nationalities. Now, what happened this past, and the conditions in these, in, in these prisons are horrific, as they are in the camps. This past week, ISIS assaulted one of these prisons, the biggest prison, holding at least 3,500 men and boys, 700 boys among them, and, and, and broke it open. And there were massive riots and uprisings inside the prison. There was a huge prison breakout. These lo- the local uh, fighters called the SDF uh, backed by the US and the UK rounded up a lot of these uh, prisoners. But in the meantime, they lost control of the prison. So there had been a-, a battle. And as we speak, it's ongoing. Perhaps by the time this airs, you'll know what the outcome. There's a battle ongoing for the final wing, wing of the prison. So for the past week, 700 boys along with thousands of adults were Held inside this prison that was partially controlled by ISIS and caught in the crossfire of attacks by US Bradleys, uh, by US airstrikes, by local forces on the one hand, and ISIS on the other. And hundreds of people have died. We have reports that children are among those who are the dead and injured. And I had conversations uh, with um, three of the prisoners uh, inside, including um, a boy, four prisoners, excuse me, um, including a 17 year old Australian boy who said he was shot in the head and the hand and he kept begging and begging and begging for help. He said, please, please, there's no, there's no medical care here. Please, I'm bleeding, help me. I'm scared, we're scared. We think they're gonna kill us, help me. Another boy I spoke to actually was 18, so I guess he's technically a man who said he was American. His voice was weak. He said, we're, we have no food, we have no water, we're starving, please help us. I mean, these cries of help coming from this prison. Um, this was an entirely preventable and predictable situation uh, crisis. Why do I say this? Because for years, the detaining authorities in Northeast Syria have been begging Um, countries uh, around the world to take their nationals out of these prisons and to bring them home for rehabilitation and reintegration and prosecution if necessary, which is exactly what these countries should be doing for their nationals. But instead, countries around the world have been just outsourcing responsibility of these nearly 45,000 prisoners, most of them women and children, to a non-state actor, the Syrian Democratic Forces, inside a war zone where the conditions are horrific. So why do I say this is Guantanamo steroids? Because these 40, nearly 45,000 foreign detainees who are suspected of, suspected of being ISIS members or of being the children of ISIS members um, have had no due process whatsoever. They haven't been brought before a judge even to determine whether they're a security threat and ought to be in that prison. So. Their rights have been deeply violated. They are at risk to right to life, which was of course abundantly clear during the siege this past week. They, many of them have tuberculosis. Uh, um, the, during the siege, the people who had t- tuberculosis were intermingled with the adults, with the children. There wasn't any medicine. I mean, people, hundreds of children have died in, uh, in, in detained in Northeast Syria, including foreigners. And governments are looking the other way. Now significantly, so that's why I say it's a Guantanamo on steroids, because there are 15 times the number of people uh, held in northeast Syria as alleged terrorism suspects as were ever held at Guantanamo. Um, And dozens of governments are refusing to take back their nationals. They're just letting them rot there. And the U.S. has been calling on them to take back their nationals. And of course, I don't say of course, but I'm not surprised that these allies of the U.S., like the U.K., like Australia, like Canada, are not listening. They're not taking their nationals back, except a few token, token numbers. And what moral authority does the U.S. have to force uh, countries to take their nationals back? None, because Guantanamo is still open. So that, to me, it's a clear example of, of the way that the U.S. has simply no clout anymore uh, in the rest of the world when it comes to humane treatment of, of security suspects. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's, it's just heartbreaking to think that the United States champion of freedom and democracy is, is just, a, just a hypocrite um, because these values seem to mean, mean nothing anymore. Uh, when it comes to terrorism suspects. And so now, 20 years later, is the time to change course.
0: And now, as I understand it, we're going to play two sets of audio clips pertaining to this situation that Leta has kindly provided to be heard on this program. The first set of audio clips is from January 25th, 2022. A warning that you may find this audio distressing. And with that being said, the first set of audio clips. I'm scared if I die
3: any time, please, I need any help. Uh, They're not stopping shooting every little bit. They shoot every little bit, they hit a missile. I don't know what to do, please help me. My name is... I'm Australian. Uh, I'm 17 years old. I just got shot by Apache. My head's bleeding. I have an injury in my head and my hand. There's no doctors here that can help me. Uh, um, I, I, I need help, please. I'm very scared. There's a lot of people dead in front of me. I'm scared I might die any time because of bleeding. Please help me. My name is... I'm uh, 2003, I'm, eight. I'm 17 years old, I need help, we're getting hit from every side, from the Kurds, we're getting hit by planes, it's very hard here, I'm very scared, I still uh, a lot of bodies of kids, 8 years, 10 years, 12 years, my friends got killed here, I'm very scared, I'm by myself, there's a lot of people dead, a lot of people injured, people are screaming next to me, people are scared, I really need help, I really want to come back home, please help me. This, before they hit, they drained the people that were cooking, and uh, this is where see I got injured. In back, uh, you can see the pots in the back, to the fire, and they just drained them out of nowhere. Uh, if you need anything else, just tell me, yeah, I'm, I'm and Please help me. I really, really need help.
0: And now for the second set of audio clips. These are from January 28th, 2022. Again, you may find the content distressing. With that said, the second set of audio clips.
3: I'm a 17-year-old Australian citizen. Uh, I was uh, just sitting uh, in my cell and then an explosion happened, and then everyone started to run outside. So I ran out because I was shooting at a building. And then I ran out uh, with my friends, and on the way, my friends just got killed in front of me, some of my 8-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds. And I kept running, and then uh, a punched on top of me, a building on top of me, and then I just got injured in my head and my hand. Yeah, I lost a lot of blood. Yeah, I don't know what to do. There's no doctors here. And uh, there's no one that can help me uh, I'm very scared. I need help, please. 15 or 20 uh, got killed. And a lot got injured. Uh, I'm running out inside a building. I can't get out because I'm scared if the planes hit me. Uh, and all i know but that is a lot of dead and there's a lot of injured now especially outside on the on the streets and that you can see from the windows here yeah. there's a lot of bodies dead bodies and that and uh, there's a lot of injured people here yeah, screaming from uh, uh, pain and that and still very scary. i don't know what to do and uh, right now, we're scared to stay even inside the buildings because they're throwing us to bomb the buildings, and uh, we don't know what to do. We're really, really scared anytime they can come bomb these buildings. And uh, so, just please help
0: us. Well, I want to thank you again, Letta Taylor, for coming on Parallax Views.
2: Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor to be uh, on your program, and I wish you the very best of luck with your future podcast. It's really terrific that you do this work. Thank you.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Leta Taylor of Human Rights Watch about the new Human Rights Watch and Costs of War Project Report, Legacy of the Dark Side. The Costs of Unlawful U.S. Detentions and Interrogations Post-9-11. Next up, Maya Solovitz joins us to discuss her new book, Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. We will be talking about how drug addiction works, why many of the policies related to the war on drugs have done more to harm than help in the recovery of those suffering from drug addiction and countering misinformation that has been going around concerning drug addiction and drug policy in the United States of America. All that and more in our conversation with Maya Solovitz. But first, a word from one of our sponsors...
4: I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust, a stretch. You can read about it on my website, BerlinRick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you.
0: Welcome to Parallax Views, Maya Solovitz, author of Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. How are you doing today? I'm good, and you? I am am doing great and I'm glad we could get you on the show because I've been noticing a lot of uh, what I would say is misinformation or or disinformation uh, about issues surrounding addiction, uh, criminalization and decriminalization. And I, I wanted to start with maybe uh, giving listeners an idea of uh, where you're coming from on this issue and your background.
5: Sure. So I've been writing about drugs and addiction for at least 30 years at this point. And I had my own addiction in my 20s and was just sort of stunned by how crazy this area is where there's just myth after myth after myth, and most of the stuff that people believe about drugs and addiction is just not true. And so I kind of ended up making a career out of it because it was just so ridiculous. And also for for a writer, it was a very rich area because it's just like the conventional wisdom is always so bad, or maybe not always, but for the most part.
0: And could you talk a little bit about the thesis of uh, the book, Undoing Drugs?
5: Sure. So it is the first ever history of harm reduction. And harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that we should stop people from getting hurt rather than stop people from getting high. And that the primary goal should be, let's avoid hurting people rather than let's try to stop people from having euphoria via chemicals.
0: And also, you had a, a recent piece, and that'll still get more into uh, the issue I wanted to have you on about, but you wrote uh, a, an op-ed in the New York Times um, from just a few days ago, actually. Uh, I've covered drug policy for three decades. Here's why I'm looking to Oregon. Uh, what is going on in Oregon that uh, has you sort of excited about the direction things are going?
5: Sure. So um, they are the first state to completely decriminalize possession of all currently illegal drugs. So heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, fentanyl, whatever. Um, And the point I was trying to make in the piece is just that we're all about, oh, we need to reduce stigma. We need to like, you know, see people with addiction as human beings. and, And, you know, there's all these summits on stigma and everything like that. But criminalization is the hugest engine of stigma that we have it is entirely about creating stigma in order to deter people from using drugs. It obviously hasn't been working so well at doing that, but it certainly is good at giving people a criminal record and then making it very difficult for them to recover. And so this whole idea that we should criminalize drugs to send a message so that people won't use them, this has clearly failed. And nobody can actually give me a good argument for what we do right now, which is arrest people for possession. We don't provide treatment. We don't do anything other than that. They go to jail for a few days or maybe a week or two. And now they're out and they don't have, if they have an opioid problem, they don't have a tolerance anymore. And they're something like six to eight times more likely to relapse and die of an overdose um, in that situation because their tolerance is uh, so low now that they've been you know, left to withdraw in jail with no help. Um, so OK, so nobody can give me a good argument for this, but they want to make an argument, oh, we can just uh, arrest people and force them into treatment, and that that will solve the problem. First of all, if we tried to treat everybody we arrested for drugs in the United States, we'd instantly run out of treatment. Um, secondly, it's really, you know, arrest is not a good tool for the diagnosis of addiction. Um, arrest is really not a good healthcare tool in general. And so this is a really ridiculous way to deal with something that everybody now says, oh, it's a disease we should destigmatize. If we really want to do that, we need to not use prison and not have this idea that people with addiction are just so incorrigible and so bad that the only way to help them is to force them to hit bottom and this will then spur recovery. We know that this is not true. People do sometimes recover when they're in the worst possible situation. But if you think about who's more likely to recover, someone with resources or someone with no resources, obviously, you're going to pick the person with resources.
0: So that brings me to, and I hope we can, I I hope my naming names here isn't an issue. But the the reason I contacted you to come on is that there's this figure by the name of um, uh, Michael Schellenberger that, you know, has been pushing this line that, you know, San Francisco has gone to crap because of uh, drug users in the street using drugs publicly and, and all of this stuff. And I've, I've seen him even be embraced by um, certain, you know, supposedly pro- progressive voices. And he, he sort of paints this picture of, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm a humanist, too. I, I, I think we should, you know, help these people. But the only way we can help these people is through, uh, you know, either arrest or forcing rehab. And I, I think that's a very uh, dangerous path to go down.
5: Well, and it's also completely falsified by all of the evidence. Um, we have been arresting people for the, at least the last fifty years, and this has never stopped drug use. It also it increases the risk of spreading disease, HIV, um, hepatitis C, COVID. Um, you know it. It doesn't help people and having a criminal record makes
0: it much harder for people to recover, not easier. So it's basically, not to interrupt you, but I mean, it's a way of treating people with addiction issues as as you're basically treating them as lepers uh, when you stigmatize them and criminalize them. And then how are they ever going to recover or uh, reintegrate into society in any meaningful way if you treat them that way?
5: Well, right. And I mean, he seems to have this idea that if we just have criminalization, we will clean up the streets of San Francisco and it's like, wait a minute, we've had criminalization, and you know, putting people in treatment or in prison for using drugs does not solve homelessness. Um, you know, most people who use drugs and even most people who are addicted are actually not homeless. Um, so if you are talking about dealing with people who need housing, this is a different issue and you know nobody wants to see people injecting on the street or defecating on the street or pissing on the street like to claim that harm reductionists think this is all fine and good is ridiculous we don't what we want to do is use effective compassionate solutions and this means that Uh, coercing people should be the last resort, not the first resort, especially because if they do have addiction, addiction is defined as compulsive drug use that continues in the face of negative consequences. In other words, negative consequences is the one thing we know will not work. Um, So if we actually want to, you know, and I mean, it's a real issue. Nobody wants, you know, their kid to see this. Um, People who are injecting on the street don't want to be there. It is, you know, it's to no one's good to have a situation like that. So what you have to do is offer services that meet people where they are. And this sometimes look like, oh, you're tolerating this. But what you're actually doing is bringing people in. And when you bring people in and when you treat people as humans with dignity and respect, they tend to respond better. It's like people live up to or down to your expectations. And if you treat somebody as a worthy person, they may just begin to treat themselves as a worthy person. And yes, this will take time, but forced abstinence takes time, too, because you just keep repeating it over and over and over because people don't learn that way. And addiction is a problem with learning. So, for example, if you want to try to teach somebody piano on. Um, you know if you just like hit them if they play the wrong note and you don't teach them anything this is not a very effective way of teaching and this is what we do in essence with addiction we just say okay um we think you're bad we think your coping skills are bad we're going to punish you until you stop taking the only thing that you feel makes life worth living that is really going to be an effective way of
0: treating people not are you familiar by any chance i'm assuming you're familiar with um I think it's, his name is um, Johan Hari.
5: Johan, yes. Uh, yes, I know him. Yes, he's yeah, I,
0: I was really influenced by his book because it, it seemed very intuitive to me after reading it that I think the book was um, Chasing the Scream. But yes. he sort of talks about how, you know, if people have, you know, support systems uh, and, and friendships and connections with others, they're more likely to have a better path to recovery. And I, I think there's a connection between the sort of, dopamine hits we get from our social interactions and the ways in which we, we can get sort of um, rushes from from drugs as well. So I think uh, there's a real social element to all of this. I hope you understand where I'm going with that.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I also just wrote a piece recently for the New York Times about um, how to people with addiction, opioids feel like love. And there's a reason for that pharmacologically and physiologically, which is that the brain opioids that our brain naturally produces are there in order to make things that are good for us. And social contact is one of the most important things for a social species. It's there to make things that are good for us feel good and make them relieve stress. So when you have, let's say somebody who is isolated and lonely, their physiology is going to be very much involved in stress. They are going to feel more stress. They are going to experience the symptoms of stress. If it goes on long term, it will increase their risk for all sorts of things from obesity to cancer. Um, So if if you recognize that people who use drugs most of the time are people who are feeling left out, isolated, unable to connect, and then they find that you know this love that they often didn't get in childhood or couldn't really fully experience in childhood, now they get this feeling from this substance, why wouldn't they do it? So you have to understand that we have this completely false image of people with addiction. We tend to think that they're just out there being hedonistic, having the greatest time in the world, and the only way to stop them is to be really cruel to them. The thing is, if you've ever had addiction, It is not fun. You are not having the best time of your life. You know, you might get an occasional high, but for the most part, by the time you're addicted, things aren't working so well and you're just compulsively chasing your tail and your life has gone to hell and you are not doing the stuff that you know you could do. Um, So it's just, we have it really backwards. And this is not to say that there aren't some people who are truly antisocial and very nasty people who have addiction there are such people in the rest of the world as well. They may be slightly overrepresented amongst people with addiction, but the fact is that most people with addiction are not inherently antisocial. And most people with addiction are trying to self-medicate something which is often childhood trauma, mental illness, or other forms of despair. So if we just stop seeing it as, oh, these are lazy people who want extra pleasure and start saying, oh, these are people who are hurting, who are trying to feel okay, um, we will then move towards much better ways of dealing with the problem because jail does not make people feel okay and connected.
0: And I was gonna say, I think most of my listeners would agree with what you're saying, but uh, assuming I have uh, a few listeners that sort of buy uh, the sort of line they hear when they watch, I don't know, like Tucker Carlson or something like that, uh, what are the best pieces of evidence we have to say, hey, uh, this sort of so-called tough love approach is not working?
5: Well, for one, there is absolutely no correlation between rates of drug arrests and incarceration related to them and rates of drug use. So, if this were working, states with more arrests should have less drug use, and states with fewer arrests should have more drug use. And there is absolutely no correlation. And this is also true on the international scale. In fact, there may even be an adverse correlation so that um, the people who do the harshest stuff actually have the worst problem. Now, that could be reverse causality, i.e. people freak out because they have a big problem when they get coercive, Um, regardless of the fact It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And we know from the medical definition of addiction that it's not going to work. And we know from real life experience that, you know, why are people getting arrested, you know, hundreds of times over and over and over again if this is such a good way of dealing with it? You know, now certainly relapse is a reality in addiction treatment. And people will often have a series of um, relapses before they get into stable recovery. Um, but that is not the same thing as sending somebody to jail over and over and over. Um, the, you can see progress with people who are working towards recovery. With jail, it just you know, rips the carpet out from under people over and over. And you know, if you look at, OK, what happens after jail? Are people more likely to get into recovery or less? They are less likely to get into recovery. Are they more likely to die by suicide or less? They are more likely to die by suicide. Are they more likely to get HIV or hepatitis C? Yes. Um, There are no positive effects of this policy. It is just failed.
0: So then what are some policies that we could put in place that would help the situation more? And how how do you sort of explain uh, to people who've been misinformed about this topic, you know, these are the policies that would work.
5: Right, so um, when you understand that addiction is often about self-medication and often about just trying to feel okay in a very difficult world, um, we can then say, okay, how can we make this situation more bearable for everyone? And just like with other disabilities, when you help people to have, you um, More access to good things, um, everybody benefits. You know, when you put in those wheelchair things, you get um, it's good for strollers also. Um, You know, so it is when you are trying to, you know, reduce childhood trauma, for example, everybody can benefit from fewer people being harmed when they're kids, but this will also reduce addiction risk. Um, So, you know, Obviously, we're not going to solve poverty and trauma overnight. Um, But if we actually want to have fewer people with chaotic addictions, what we want to do is treat people in general better. And that sounds really silly, but if you just, if you understand where addiction comes from, shame and stigma and all of these things make it worse you know, people with addiction often hate themselves. This was certainly my experience. And the more you hate yourself, the more you want to get high. And so making people hate themselves more and feel more shame actually fuels the addiction because you don't believe you deserve any better. And if you keep getting told that that is what all you're good for, then at a certain point, you're just going to say, okay, whatever, that's all I'm good for. Um, So, you know, the better way to approach it is first of all decriminalize possession because all of the hundreds of millions of dollars that we spend every year on locking people up for possession only makes things worse and this is what Oregon has done they took away the um criminal penalties for um so it's basically like getting a traffic ticket and you if what happens if if a police officer encounters somebody with drug possession they Give them a ticket, and if they call a hotline and get an evaluation, they don't have to do anything else. Um, now, ideally, they call the hotline, they get an evaluation, and they say, "Hmm, okay, that sounds like maybe I should try that." And now I have access to treatment. Um, that sounds like it might be a good fit for me. Um, so it works that way. But you know, we don't have donut courts for people who overeat. We do not have you know, alcohol courts for people who drink and don't harm anybody else. And we don't have cigarette courts to try to like stop people from smoking. Um, we recognize that these are health problems and that most people will quit eventually, um, often with help. Um, so instead of um, you know, treating this as a criminal problem, we actually have to put our money where our mouth is and treat it as a medical disorder, and that's what Oregon is doing. They're about to spend, I think it's two hundred seventy million dollars, um, on expanding treatment. And apparently, they started out with a pretty lousy treatment system, and you know, people were arguing, well, you can't decriminalize before you get the treatment in place, but of course, you're never going to get the treatment in place without decriminalizing. So, because you know, there's only a limited amount of money, um, so. Doing that um, is really where we should be going, and and there is the example of Portugal, which some people have uh, lied
0: about. Um, I, I, I want to I want to talk in particular about that because that what yeah, what so, have people lied about with regards to Portugal, and what what is actually going on there? So
5: what's actually going on there is that they decriminalize drug possession, and that means that similar to Oregon, which was modeled on Portugal. If you are caught in possession of a substance, you get the equivalent of a traffic t- traffic ticket, and you have to appear at something called a dissuasion committee, which will determine: okay, you're casual pot smoker, just go away and try not to get caught. Um, if you are a person, you know who's you know really addicted, they might say, you know, well, it would be good if you get treatment. Um, if they're not ready to get treatment. Needle exchange, um, safe injection um, facility—they can refer to those things. Um, So the whole idea is to take punishment out of the equation. And people have claimed that, oh, when people go before these dissuasion committees, they're forced into treatment. That can happen. It happens less than five percent of the time. Um, And so you know, this is not their, their primary policy is to use the medical system, which they funded a lot of new treatment as they were decriminalizing. Um, So, no, it's not about using police primarily to arrest people. And, you know, if you shoot up in front of a police officer, are you going to get stopped and told not to do that? Yes, you are. But that does not mean they're taking you to prison immediately. And so people have taken advantage of the language differences um, in order to make it look like their policy is different from the way it actually is. Um, They rarely use coercion. Certainly European places like Portugal have used police to clean up street drug scenes at some point. But when they do that, what they also do and what they do first is incredible outreach to get people into housing, to get people treatment, to get people mental health care, to get people whatever they need, basically. And only then do they use police. So it's absolutely not the first resort, which is what we do. And to claim that Portugal's system relies on coerced treatment is to completely distort what they actually do there.
0: And I I was going to say, you've actually... um you have visited I Portugal have vis- and you have spoken uh, to their yeah. drug policy lead and they are not happy with these people that are lying.
5: No, no. And it's, it's just like, you know, um, it, it is just a terrible thing to take advantage of language differences and to, um, you know, take advantage of the fact that most Americans haven't been to Portugal and most Americans don't know what actually goes on there. And, you know, um, to say that Europeans never use police around street drug scenes is a lie but to say that that's their primary response is also a lie it's just not what happens you know their main response like for example Switzerland um, they first they in the 90s uh, when HIV was hitting really bad there they, allowed this park to be used for open injecting and open air drug selling. And it got really crazy and really messy. Um, And so they decided, okay, this was really a bad idea because we've like attracted drug dealers and drug users from across Europe. And we have this mess here and it's not producing harm. Um, So they shut down that scene in part using police but primarily offering healthcare, offering uh, treatment, offering services. And when they did shut it down via police, the whole scene within a few months reconstituted itself in a train station, an abandoned train station near there. So, okay, so what did they do? They didn't just sweep in with the police again. They went and they provided prescription heroin to a lot of people. They expanded access to methadone and other treatments. Um, They, Lured people into housing, um, and then the police came. Uh, so it's just you know to say that that's their first response and that like this is the way you solve these problems, is just silly. Um, you know we certainly um, have had police sweeps that clean up or you know that that destroy um, housing encampments. This does not solve homelessness. Um, we have had for many, many decades um, a housing system for um, people who are unsheltered that requires them to be abstinent before they can get housing and trying to be abstinent while you're on the street is not so easy and is really, you know, also trying to simply be instantly and perfectly abstinent when you've been using drugs for 20 years, again, not gonna happen overnight for the most part. So there's this whole approach called housing first. And the idea there is that you offer people housing and supportive services, um, but you don't require abstinence. You do require people not to be jerks to other people, um, but you don't require that they get drug tested or any of these things that um, really put people off from housing or just get them thrown out. Um, And this has been really successful. Um, Nobody hears much about this, but this approach cut homelessness among veterans in the United States by 50%. Um, And in Utah, they had um, an even larger situation where they expanded this model and they cut homelessness dramatically and then of course they defunded it and it got bad again um but um the you know the way to deal with these problems is to find out what they were you know what's the real problem here why is this person you know unhoused um you know can we treat the mental illness is there an addiction can we treat the addiction is there trauma you know what can we do about that um it's it's all about just meeting people where they are recognizing that people, even drug users, are actually rational um, and are doing, they may look like they're doing stuff that makes no sense from the outside, but when you understand what's going on from the inside, then you can actually help people.
0: And I just wanted to add to that, I know we've went a few minutes over already, but um, you know, with the whole Portugal thing, I mean, they have safe injection centers, uh, when they do arrest, my understanding is they're given a citation to appear, uh, not necessarily taken into custody. Um well, that's, and the, that's the thing. Yeah.
5: It it all it depends on what the meaning of arrest is, right? Like, and so this is where the language issue came in. Um, but basically. Are you arrested when you get a traffic ticket? No, you're not. You're just given the ticket and then you're expected to appear or pay or whatever you're supposed to do. Um, And that is the way drug possession cases are handled in Portugal. Typically, they are not typically taken into custody. Um, And so I don't consider it an arrest if you're not taken into custody. I mean, maybe there's some technical language semantics things there, but the bottom line is that it is a civil offense, not a criminal one. Um, and that mostly what happens is people are just told, don't do this again. <laughs> because most of and the I, people... I think you see-
0: said that, what, uh, only 5% of those that get cited end up recited when, exactly. when they see these dissuasion and, committees. Right, yeah.
5: exactly. And so, um, you know, the whole point is to just get the police out of this, you know. Um, yes, the police are involved in drug dealing there, you know, or I mean, they're involved in policing drug dealing. I'm not um trying to impugn the Portuguese police, um, but the um you know they're not going out looking to arrest people for drug possession. So if you're doing something dumb like public consumption, they may well come and give you citation um but the main thing is to let the medical system handle it and their drug policy leader told me um or it's actually on a website this quote um where he said that you know the biggest thing that that this system has done is to reduce stigma. And by reducing stigma, you attract people into treatment because they feel like, oh, okay, I got this like mental health issue. Um, let me go deal with it, as opposed to, oh, god, I'm going to go. I'm going to be treated like a criminal. The treatment's going to be punitive. Um, I'm going to be, you know, seen as a bad person. You know, um, it really is. When you take the criminal part out of it, you really help people to see yes, this is a medical problem. And, you know, in the United States, we have everybody going around saying addiction is a disease, addiction is a disease. Why is it the only disease we treat with the rest? Like, you know, if you're going to say that, then you have to decriminalize. Um, if you're going to criminalize, then you have to say, we believe um, drug use and addiction is a sin and just be honest about it, <laughs> you know? Um, but of course people don't wanna do that because that is not at all the way we are, you know, seeing addiction generally because most of us know somebody with addiction and we love somebody with addiction and we know that that caricature is not who they typically are.
0: In, in, so in Portugal, they, they rarely mandate treatment, these dissuasion committees, right?
5: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be mandated on a first offense. And given that only 5% have a second offense, um, <laughs> I don't think it's mandated on a second offense. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it really, you know, they call it a dissuasion committee for a reason. It's not the coercion committee.
0: So the the last thing I wanted to mention too, you mentioned, uh, you used the term chaotic addictions earlier. Um, and This is like a, a real sidebar issue in a way, but um I feel like different people have different experiences when it comes to drugs and addictions. And I've known people that have relatively stable lives that are are more functional Yeah, with their – okay, I I wanted to ask about that because I wanted to ask, do you think there's different types of addictions and also – different outcomes based on maybe your status in society.
5: Well, there's, yeah. I mean, so um, addiction is defined as compulsive use that continues in the face of negative consequences. If you're not having negative consequences, you're not addicted. (laughs) Now, yes, does this mean that like a rich guy with a girlfriend who doesn't mind if he uses heroin and a perfect supply may not be considered addicted while a poor person in that same situation would be? Um, Yes. But, you know, when you are defining it, you have to also look at the compulsion aspect. So if this it has to be getting in the way of your life, like there's lots of stuff that people do repeatedly and lots of stuff that people depend on that aren't ruining their lives. And those are not addictions. They may be passions. They may be, you know, weird. um, But. Addiction has to involve harm. And if it's not involving harm, it's not addiction. And this is why you can have somebody on a heroin prescription who used to be using chaotically on the street and having a complete mess of their lives and is now taking the same drug, but taking it at the same time in the same dose every day. Now they're no longer high because they have complete tolerance by that dosing schedule and they can love and work and do all the stuff that we want people to do. Um, are they still addicted? They're still physically dependent because they'll have withdrawal if you take the drug away, but I don't consider them still addicted because they're not compulsively using in a way that's wrecking their life.
0: And, and- I, I was going to say, I, I also mentioned this because I, in some ways I worry now that we're overshooting in our reaction to the, um, the opioid crisis, because I think there are people that have responsibly used things like painkillers.
5: Well, and what's really worse is that we're cutting off people who have severe chronic pain, like people with MS, people with cancer, even people with post-cancer pain. Um, And they have been stable on opioids for 10, 20, 30 years. Now we take that away. They're curled up in a ball. We have a lot of studies that show that this triples the risk of suicide um, and triples the risk of them dying of overdose. So doing this is not helping these patients. There may be some patients who are on long-term opioids who are no longer benefiting from them, but cutting them off, you know, we can't kill the patient to save them. And that's essentially what we're doing right now. So the the whole situation where, um, you know, we've cut the medical supply so much that we're back to the pre-Oxycontin levels and we have in the same time period you know it dropped 60% since 2011 during the same time period we have had a more than doubling of overdose deaths so this did not you know solve anything it it made things worse you know and not to say that like we should continue prescribing opioids just to whoever walks in the door but when you have a large population of people who are already either physically dependent or addicted or both, and you just cut them off and you don't provide addiction care or pain care. Um, Why would we be surprised when we get a street market that flourishes and that's full of fentanyls?
0: So in closing, and uh, I promise to let you go after this because we've got about 35 minutes, but um, I guess the thing I worry about is, you know, we have so many people that are, Um, deliberately or unintentionally uh, misinforming others about this issue. Uh, Do you think, though, that in the end, uh, the right side of this debate will end up winning out?
5: Well, what, you know, and what I wrote about in my book is that slowly over time, the idea of harm reduction has really created the biggest challenge ever to prohibition. And it did that by saying, you know what? The most moral thing we can do is save people's lives. The most moral thing is not stopping people from using an evil substance. The most moral thing is not killing people. (laughs) And by shifting the focus from trying to stop people getting high to trying to stop people getting hurt it also shifts, you know, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Because these evil drugs and the cops are like, you know, taking down these evil dealers. And then when you look at it, like, well, wait a minute, that's actually making more violence. And you're ending up with a market that has more potent and more dangerous substances if you continuously do this. Um, Who are we helping by this? Um, You know, and when, you know, our drug policy has always Ostensibly been about, you know, what about the children? Um, you are not saving any children.
0: I was going to say it's also been. I mean, we've been in the war on drugs. I mean, it goes further back than than even Reagan. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, Nixon talked about the war on drugs. This is a, a decades long policy that, you know, it's not like we've won the war on drugs. It's almost like it's an unwinnable war. It's a filled. Uh, it's a filled policy. You can't-
5: Yeah. Well, you can't declare war on an inert substance. What you end up doing is declaring war on people. And you can't solve a health problem by imprisoning people and by shaming people and by increasing the harm that is done when they use the substance because it is now an impure street drug that has no regulation. Now again, this is not to say we want like Philip Morris fentanyl. Um, but what we need to do is focus on harm reduction and move forward towards a more humane policy. And this will benefit everyone. Um, the idea that, you know, our current policy is like preventing children from becoming addicted, no, it doesn't. And people, you know, people will write to me and say like, well, you know, I didn't take drugs cause I was so scared off by like what I was told in school. Well, you weren't at risk then, <laughs> you know the people who are at risk are the people who hear that scary stuff and say, oh yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> uh, or, oh wow, like nothing else is working, I guess I'll, you know, um, so, you know, the idea that this works for prevention is not even true. What works for prevention is preventing trauma healing trauma, um, helping kids who are outliers, whether it's because of their temperament or because an incipient mental illness or you know whatever makes you an outlier, um, allowing those kids to have connection and helping them to manage the unruly aspects of their temperament, um, that's what's gonna prevent addiction, not like Officer Friendly coming in and telling you how bad drugs are.
0: How can my listeners get a copy of Undoing Drugs?
5: So um, bookshop.org is the big uh, collection of independent booksellers. So that's one good place. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Um, It should be available where books are sold. um, uh, But it's probably easier to get it online these days.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Leta Taylor of Human Rights Watch on the 20 years of Guantanamo Bay. And also, Maya Solovitz, author of Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Parallax Again, that's Patreon.com slash Parallax It's the beginning of the month, and I'm looking to get a few more supporters. I should be adding a new program to the Patreon feed that'll be an exclusive to $5 tier and above supporters, but I need your help to make that happen and to keep that going when we do launch that second show more on that in the future Uh, but also we have a ten dollar tear ten dollar tear and above i should say that gets a producer's credit shout out on each and every edition of the show so producer's credit shout outs to mark arlen spartacus gunner ed gratz james mickey brian the war nerd the 42 group nick emilia chase chris orc black tuna nathan david holland Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Matthew Ho, and the Mirror Framework. A project that I highly suggest you look into if you are concerned about the environment. It stands for Mirrors for Earth's Energy Rebalancing. It's headed up by Dr. Ye Tao, a friend of the show who has appeared on the program. If you're interested, just go to mere reflection that's m-e-e-r reflection dot com if you'd like to join those listeners in receiving your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of the program well why don't you consider joining them at the $15 tier or above at my patreon page patreon.com slash parallax views again patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. To Parallax
6: Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit If it. nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right? So, you know, we have to confront